Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I consistently enjoy opera and musical theater. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I was kind of a theater kid. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Liquid Spiritual Delight, an imperial stout from the Second Shift Brewing Company out of St. Louis, Missouri. So we are, this is our relief pitcher. This is our beer that is not part of our yearly theme. It is not a Trappist ale, but uh, as those monks are achieving or attempting to achieve some kind of spiritual enlightenment, we thought a beer titled uh, Liquid Spiritual Delight might be an appropriate substitute. And uh, we like Imperial Stouts, so we'll see how it goes. We do, man. It 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 pours just like used motor oil, which is that uh, that consistency and presentation that we both like. It is well trod ground for those of you that suffered through our early episodes, however many years ago. Uh, and I am excited. I'm excited for this relief, even though I really, really loved the Trappist theme. I also am really going to love this Imperial Stout. Uh, the head's got like a um, a foamy, thick. Uh, root beer type consistency and like that caramel color to it. And what's interesting about this one compared to many of them that we have drank on the show in previous episodes is this is, I'm going to say just an Imperial Stout, whereas a lot of them that we've had before, they're a coffee Imperial Stout or they're an oatmeal Imperial Stout. They've got some sort of flavor associated with them. And if I understand correctly, this one is just the Imperial Stoutiness of the Imperial Stout, which I'm actually really excited about given how many of them we've had that have had some other flavor to them. We'll tell you how it is at the end of the show. Meanwhile, what are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? Field trips to the theater can be memorable opportunities for students to engage in community-based performing arts. Dr. Goldstein joins us to talk about how even a single theater experience can have an impact on socio-emotional outcomes like empathy and perspective-taking for students. Later, we discuss the intersection of cognitive load theory and motivation. Their method of diagramming teacher practice across both led us to a lively reflection on our own tendencies in the classroom. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read, Deeper engagement with live theater increases middle school students' empathy and social perspective taking. This was written by Reba Troxler, Talia Goldstein, Stephen Holoquist, Charles Beekman, Stephanie McKeel, and Muna Shami. This was published in Applied Developmental Science in 2022. And we are fortunate to have one of the authors on the show here today. Uh, she was talking about this research on social media, and I was like, cool, come talk about it with us. And so we are joined by Dr. Talia Goldstein, who is an associate professor and the director of Applied Developmental Psychology at George Mason University. She runs the Play, Learning, Arts, and Youth Lab, co-directs the Mason Arts Research Center, and wrote the book, Why Theater Education Matters, coming out in July. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
your discussion of the research and look at the impacts of single attendance at one theater event and the breadth of impacts it can have for students was really interesting to me because as I mentioned in the opening, I really enjoyed participating in a lot of theater uh, and drama type activities when I was younger. And that was a piece of what you looked at in your research. So I was like, neat, maybe this is something that uh, a lot of teachers who are considering field trips or otherwise wanting to integrate perhaps STEM with humanities type experiences could be uh, could be relevant for individual teachers who are just get them to one play. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, about your work and how this study came about? I've been really interested in theater and performance and acting sort of for my whole career. I was actually a professional actor uh, between college and graduate school. So I graduated from college with a major in theater and psychology and moved to New York City and worked as a nanny and a waitress and, you know, checking people in at the gym and stuff like that for a few years while also auditioning and taking a lot of dance classes and going out on children's theater tours and then coming back again. Um, but it turned out that the the lifestyle sort of wasn't for me. I missed I missed the academic life, actually, and I missed the sort of scholarly reading and asking questions and doing research like I had done in college. And so um, decided to go get my PhD. And so when I started working with the Kennedy Center um, a few years ago, uh, they were really interested in these questions of, well, what is happening when kids are sitting in the audiences of our children's theater shows? And and what changes might we be able to help with foster in gender in our kids as they're sitting in our audiences? One of the things that that struck me about just the original research concept was the relationship for live performance and live theater to other forms of media and entertainment. I'm thinking in particular about, you know, students can watch videos or they can see animated models or they can see some of these other creations. I think about that all the time. This is actually a question that like haunts me because it's almost impossible to do a well-controlled research study of. There are so many variables that are different between watching something on a television and actually walking into a space and watching it live. So some of the things I think about are ones exactly like you mentioned. So for example, um, there's no fourth wall uh, when you're in the theater, right? So everything happens facing the audience. And so the audience members have to sort of put their own imagination into play in order to fill in the gaps, right? Because as soon as you sort of sit back in your seat a little bit, you can see that what you're watching is artifice. You can see that there is no ceiling or no real door or that the props are just sort of imaginations of props and not like a fully fledged uh, realistic scene. You don't necessarily get that in the movie, right? In the movies or on TV, you're watching something that takes place in 360 degrees because the camera can go sort of all around. It doesn't have to be presentational. Similarly, um, when you're watching something in the movies or on film or even social media, the person who's doing the filming is making a lot of decisions about where to place your focus. So if the director wants you to focus in on one person's face, they're going to put the camera in that person's face. And you as an audience member have no idea what's happening in the rest of the scene because all you're seeing is that person's face. But when you're sitting in a theater, you have a lot of choice as an audience member. You can look at the person who's talking. You can look at the person who's reacting. You can look at the background extra who hopefully is just as engaged as everybody else. You can look at the t 
top of the stage and the top of the proscenium. You can look at the person sitting next to you, right? And so directors for the theater have a lot of tricks to orient your attention, to get you to pay attention to one thing or another thing, right? But it's not the same as something that's filmed where the camera really is deciding for the audience member where to look. Um, and then just to like push back a little bit on the mirror neuron thing, because um, the mirror neuron system, uh, there's there's not strong evidence anymore that the mirror neuron system is really the thing that's active when audiences are watching other humans. Um, it doesn't seem to be so implicated in sort of empathic or emotional processes. There does seem to be a mirroring system that is much more relegated to like physical actions. So there's some physical action stuff there, but not necessarily emotional action. But actually, I think that makes theater even more interesting in the absence of a mirror neuron system, because what you're doing when you're in the theater because you have to apply your own like imaginative capacity as you're watching things happen you also get this opportunity to fill in yourself right because it's not so full as when you're watching a, a big film or or a big TV show, you can fill in a little bit of like, well, what would it be like if I did that? Or what would it be like if I was in that position? What what does this remind me of for my own emotionality? So I do think there's something very real about being in a real room with real humans doing real actions. Um, I really want to do that research, but it's, as I said, so many variables. It's like really hard to do. Thank you. Thank you for updating my understanding of mirror nods. And now I have homework. Uh, the I have a great... I have a great article if you ever want to read it. It's like it, the article is called something like Whatever Happened to Mirror Neurons? And it basically traces this like rise, like stratospheric rise, and then like just crashing down fall of what the research actually shows those mirroring systems are for. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. So like that's, that'd be great, please. Um, I'm editing Michael. Email her and get that get that get that link. the The other piece of um, what I really appreciate you pointing out is there's a level of like communal agreement or participation amongst the audience of because I can either consent or withhold consent to put my attention in one particular place or another. There's a sort of everybody's kind of in it together. Of are we all looking around? Am I on my phone? Am I looking back over here? Uh, we all have to agree to construct this scene together. It actually Lawrence makes me think of a paper that I loved that we read gosh three or four years ago now where they were looking at the um the impact of role playing as a part of teacher preparation and this construction of a teatro um as this like mutual way to walk through scenarios in in um potential classrooms and the essential role of this communal agreement that we are all negotiating this scenario together and we we enter characters and then we exit characters and discuss them at a you know at a metacognitive level and we come back into them and we, we participate in the scene some more and it sounds like listening to you talk that the live theater has an element of that of it really only works if we are all kind of at this level of agreement that you don't have to have when it's constructed on a camera or on film yeah, absolutely. And I think also that speaks to what I sort of have developed as a hypothesis of the secret sauce of theater, um, which is um, this sense of containment and a sense of embodiment. So containment is this idea that actually comes from 
therapy and the therapeutic literature, which is this idea of safe space. There's a separation from reality, a separation from self that allows you to try things out that you might not feel comfortable trying out in your real life, right? Try on new emotions, try on new attitudes, try on new beliefs, um, express yourself in a new way, sort of expand that idea of what's possible for you. And then if it works, great, you can bring it back out of that space for you. And if it doesn't work, no harm, no foul. It's a consequence-free sort of environment. And you can step away and go like, okay, that didn't quite work for me. Let's try something else. So it's this idea of like the space is a very real space because you're really involved in it, but it is also has this sort of, I don't know what's there's an L word and now I can't remember what it is. Liminal. That's what it is. There's a sort of liminal space to it, which is that it's in between reality and fantasy. And so you can sort of play with those boundaries. So as we explore, as you state this exploration of uh, emotions and actions and considering what it might be like in this situation for that situation, we actually start getting to the heart of what this paper was actually about, which was, you know, perspective taking and empathy building as, uh, as something to look at. If you'll allow me to do a, my, my conceptualization of what you did in the paper, like very briefly, very basically, uh, by, Using surveys, uh, we uh, assessed students' um, cognitive empathy, effective empathy, um, willingness to uh, engage in perspective taking, and ability to take uh, perspectives uh, before and after uh, different degrees of viewing live theater. Uh, and there were multiple different treatment groups uh, and they it was sort of a, if I understand, it was sort of a, um, uh, were, were those treatments assigned or was that a natural experiment? Can you help me a little bit more about uh, the design of the five different, I think there were five different treatment groups. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, most of the treatment groups were assigned, but there were some elements that were naturally occurring um, according to the teachers and the teacher's expertise. So basically, we randomly assigned classrooms to either attend this show, the Prince and the Popper um, show, or to not attend the show. So that was the first major sort of treatment group. Then a lot of... Um, Educational theatrical experiences now have some pre-work or pre-performance sort of um, workbooks or uh, material that the students can read and engage with in order to prepare themselves to go to the theater. So we randomly assigned some classrooms to get that uh, pre-show uh, workbook and randomly assigned some to not get it. Um, and then we also randomly assigned some groups to get a post-show discussion and sort of reflection period and feedback period. So basically, if you were a student in our study, you either went to the theater or you didn't. And if you did go to the theater, you either got the pre-show workbook to have a discussion with your teacher and or, so some students got both and some students only got one, you got the post-show discussion after you went to the theater. And those were the ways in which we sort of randomly assigned the students. There were two, three additional um 
things that we accounted for, moderators that we accounted for uh, in our study. So the first was, did the theaters, did the students have any additional theater experience? So had those students gone to the theater before or had they ever participated in theater before? So that we did not sort of randomly assign students to because that's natural experience. In addition to that, some of our teachers had already had the students read the book, The Prince and the Pauper. And so we we didn't force the students to do that, but if the teachers had asked the students to do that, we accounted for the fact that they'd read the whole source material before they came to the theater. Um, and so we measured the students' um, social perspective taking and empathy and uh, before they came to the theater and before they did any of the activities. And then we measured again after they came to the theater and after they did the activities. And for those students who didn't come to the theater, we um, had the same gap of time and we measured their, uh, you know, what would be their sort of pre-show um, empathy and perspective taking, even though they didn't come to the show. And then like two weeks later, we went back to the schools and measured again. So the same amount of time between the two, but no real theater activities in between. Consuming the material in one form prior to coming into this live experience, get some of the initial familiarity in there so you can be engaging in more nuance, more subtlety. You can have larger chunks of, I noticed that this is important because I read it and like I know what's about to happen. And so I can, I can, as you are referencing, direct my attention to a place where had I not had that initial experience, I wouldn't have the competency to direct my attention, to be ready to, to consume that at, at a more robust level. And I think that the lesson is in your study, but actually is very broadly applicable to any sort of live engagement experience is having that initial exposure to the primary content that's different than like the preparatory workbook that you also studied. The engagement with the, the fiction itself is a really powerful way to set up to have a richer experience in the live exchange. So that pre-show workbook is actually focused on the six tenets of hip hop and the translation of the material. It has sort of a brief summary of the material, but it's the translation of that sort of original Prince and the Popper story into this hip hop driven musical that was what was actually written and created and performed. And the engagement with that workbook, which we randomly assigned some students to do and other students not to do, actually didn't affect their empathy. Empathy, um, or perspective taking after having seen the show, but reading the the in-depth sort of longer term engagement with the material did. And I think that speaks to your point um, as well, which is it's not enough to sort of spend just a little bit of time. That doesn't seem to be making a difference, but the sort of deeper engagement, longer amount of time, you mentioned two weeks to read an article, right? Like reading this book took the teacher sort of several weeks to get through and it was a much more full unit. So, so depth of engagement really did matter there. And I think Two, you know, we found some of the strongest effects that we found for empathy were in this post-show discussion and this post-show reflection period. And I think also in the same way that deeper engagement with material ahead of time sort of set the students up to be able to find inroads while they were watching the show, right? Oh, I remember that, or that's this moment, or that's that metaphor. The reflection time, um, you know, which was 
was set up from our really excellent um, teaching teaching artists at the Kennedy Center. This reflection time was all about, well, what character did you identify with? Or how did you think about the way that these two characters interacted with each other? Or what moments stood out to you? And I think that has a sort of broader and wider applicability as well, which is um, you don't just want to present the material, right? You don't just want to sort of show the students what's going on and then say, okay, great. Now you've seen it. See you later, right? You want to take that time to say, what's the inroads that you were making? Where did you find a deeper connection? What upon reflection stood out as particularly important to you? Or what was surprising to you? Or what would you like to see again or get more information about? So I think um, this this, this is why we titled the paper Deeper Engagement, right? Because it's that sort of preliminary deeper engagement of reading the book and then this post-show deeper engagement of reflection and back and forth that seems to make the most difference for that perspective taking and empathy. Uh, one of the things that I noticed in the paper, if I read it correctly, was that uh, there was a comment suggesting that the uh, engagement in the discussion was not as forthcoming and as deep from the students as uh, anticipated it, it did I, and and I uh, as a classroom practitioner I kind of um, empathized with the you know the challenge of getting students to express uh, like they may be in here actually engaging at a much le deeper level than they're willing to communicate here. And if I understood correctly, the person leading that discussion was a stranger to them. And I'm wondering what would happen if that discussion had been led by someone that they were familiar with, um, someone that they had already had a relationship with and someone who was um, like they had already practiced communicating and expressing themselves to as they're wrestling with these ideas. Uh, I'm wondering if that would have a difference than a docent who was just executing the, the the conversation. Yeah, I think that's I think you absolutely are right there cuz I think that what the the reason I think we saw effects from the post show discussion was actually not because of what the post-show discussion actually was in those moments, right, in the 15 minutes after the show, but rather what it primed for the students and what it sort of set them up to walk away with, right? Instead of just giving them the material, we gave them the material and then some points to take away to start walking away with. And, and that's why I think we found the effect we did. However, um, I think you are absolutely right that they probably were engaging sort of mentally, right? They were sort of reflecting mentally and not communicating because we hadn't quite done enough work to set up that space for them with the person that they were familiar with, familiar interacting with, familiar engaging with. And there's actually really interesting work from the drama-based pedagogy literature. So drama-based pedagogy is this integrated art form where um, teaching artists and trained teachers bring in elements from acting classes, techniques and theories from improvisational theater into the classroom um, to help support and illuminate and sort of make fun um, 
non-theatrical material, right? So it's it's sort of like let's as you were talking before um, about like role play exercises in teacher training. Similarly, you might uh, have students dress in togas and engage in a you know Greek debate about democracy um, and set them up with tableaus and set them up with scripts and set them up with characters, and that would be considered drama-based pedagogy. So there have been a number of meta-analyses, studies of studies of the efficacy of drama-based pedagogy. And in fact, one of the most interesting findings from some recent um, meta-analyses by Bridget Lee and Catherine Dawson and others is that when the classroom teacher is involved, it's actually just as good as when the teaching artist is involved. And there are several different situations in which the classroom teacher is a much more important element than the teaching artist, right? And so even though a lot of classroom teachers are not trained in drama, are not trained in improv, I think that the role that the classroom teacher plays in having that level of communication and safety with the students, the students knowing and trusting how to communicate with that teacher is really, I I think, valuable and mechanistic for these kinds of interesting experiences that the students are prompted to have, but then want to have with their classroom teacher, with the person they're most familiar with to learn from. Along those lines, this is not the same thing, but it may have some resonance is that uh, years ago, it started becoming a popular thing for for teachers to create and record themselves doing tutorial videos. There's a flipped classroom thing going on, or really just banking a bank of resources for students to access. And uh, the research found, and I was like, okay, well, you know, the Bozeman science, they got all the science recorded that could ever be done in all of human history. But then the research said the students appreciate and learn more and engage with if it's their own teacher making the video than some stranger that has equivalent information. Like, I could just read that script, but putting my face on the camera gives my kids a greater sense of connection and familiarity and decreases any anxiety. They don't have to like puzzle out. How do I feel about this presenter? They already know who I am. They know how I'm going to speak. Let's just get to it. And so it sounds like, you know, a similar kind of thing that. Yeah. I mean, and this goes right back to all the social emotional learning stuff we know, which is that kids learn better when they like their teacher. Kids learn better when they feel a sense of attachment to their teacher. Kids learn better when they feel a sense of social and emotional safety in their classroom. That has to be the foundation in order to get all of the other academic stuff that we care so much about in line. Um, and I think it's it's all of a piece. I think it's all connected in that way. A couple of the findings that you reported on class preparation actually had significant negative impacts on some of your outcome measures, um, meaning that greater preparation actually reduced the the degree of growth or the, the scores on some of those emotional measures. And it makes me think of striking this balance between building the sense of mutual commitment and investment in the work without going so far as to crush the the play space necessarily, reducing the, the space for students to explore. If you get all the way to, this is what we expect, this is what you will do, this is what's going to happen, you were, you lose that opportunity for exploration or for like projecting themselves into the space and actually see a reduction in performance. But that actually overlapped very closely with some of the best stuff out of this out of this work, like the very responsive discussions, which I it's in my notes. I loved the responsiveness of those 
facilitated discussions the way that you design them. It just makes my heart sing. And so I, I think it's worth calling out in all of this, investing in the classroom space and the understanding that students can enter that space with a degree of vulnerability, of healthy vulnerability and how they can imagine the, you know, being in these different character places, but not getting to a place where I'm going to say over invest or, or reduce the space for them to then insert themselves. If it's too much that it actually has negative impacts, which actually was some of what was in your findings. Did, did you read those findings similarly or did I misunderstand? The death knell in theater is that it's boring, right? The death knell in, in movies or in TV is that it's boring. People, people can watch something and hate it or watch something and love it. But if they watch something and it's boring, they're going to turn it off and walk away. Um, and so I do worry sometimes uh, that if we spend too much time sort of pushing on the pedagogical goals of engaging in theater um, and saying, we're going to give you this experience so that you can gain in X, Y, and Z, um, and so that you can learn X, Y, and Z, uh, then you sort of take away the intrinsic motivation to engage in it or the fun of it or the playfulness of it. So I do think, you know, and this is something that I, that I'm actually concerned with quite often in the research that I do, because what I'm looking for is the effects of theater and the effects of engaging in this activity that is intrinsically motivating and fun. Um, I don't want it to become that the reason we go to the theater is to increase empathy or the reason we do arts activities is because it makes us better at something else, right? I want them to be engaging and um, worthwhile and put forward for children and, and given to kids in their lives and in their schools because they're enjoyable in their own right and they're useful in their own right and, and they are necessary in their own right. So I do think that um, some of these negative findings that we that we had were probably because of the amount of preparation and the maybe the the way in which it became much more of a pedagogical experience or a straightforward experience and sort of took a little bit of the fun out. This is one of the things, though, um, that I hope that we can do in some future research. And, and this work continues, and we're still doing studies in this area and on these topics, um, which is to get even more in depth into what the teachers are actually doing in the classrooms. And because one of the things is that that you know, we can provide the guides and we can provide the books and we can provide the the questions and that kind of thing. But that teacher knows those students and what those students are ready for and where those students want to go with their Q&A and what those students, what's going to light them up and what's going to get them sort of excited and ready and engaged. And so I think um, this is this is what makes this area both super difficult to study and super difficult to like do experiments with, but also really, really exciting, which is that um, I think there is, I often think of theater as a, a flexible toolkit, right? It's a box of tools that teachers can use um, to give their students what their students need and to meet their students where their students are. Um, and you can use different different aspects of that toolbox for different student groups. So yeah, I, my hope is that we can start to get a little more detailed about the individual differences amongst the classrooms into how teachers were engaging with these materials. Um, and we can start to look at, uh, also start to look at sort of student, student 
motivation to engage in the materials outside of what the teachers are presenting to them? Like what is activating them to want to go read more books on this topic or go see more shows, right? That's something that we're really interested in too, is like what what gets them excited about engaging in artistic experiences that may or may not be paired with materials that they're working on in the classroom. Well, thank you for joining us. This has been a really uh, pleasant and uh, productive conversation. Uh, I know I appreciate that in your paper, you made a lot of the instructional materials freely available. So if somebody wants to see your discussion guide or your uh, pre-preparatory materials, they can already go online and see those things that have posted as a part of your publication. But for people who want to learn more from you and the work that you do, where can our listeners find more of your work? Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. I love this paper. I love talking about it. Um, You can find me at playlab.gmu.edu. That is the website of my lab and and also my soon-to-be-launched personal website, which is taliagoldstein.com for when my book comes out, Why Theater Education Matters. Um, But yeah, my, my last thought here is go see some theater. Take your kids to go see some theater, go see some live theater, go see some community theater, go see a Broadway show, go see some some live actors doing the thing that they're best at and um, and have some fun while you're doing it. Yeah. Listen, plan and play. For our second segment, we read Cognitive Load Theory and Its Relationships with Motivation, a Self-Determination Theory Perspective. This was written by Paul Evans, Martin von Steenkista, Philip Parker, Andrew Kingsford-Smith, and Shagan Joe. This was published in Educational Psychology Review in 2024. You're about to tell me why you uh, 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 loaded up this paper, but I got to tell you, I love that you did. Liked it a Cheers. lot. Yes, sir. This paper, we've talked about cognitive load theory before. And we've talked about self-determination we theory sure before. We are, we, and I will say even me, uh, pretty into SDT. And I am pretty into cognitive load theory. Which is interesting because cognitive load theory, I think it's had some conflicting results come out recently. Like it, that is not necessarily like a unity point of full agreement across the field. Well, let me, let me back up. I'm overstating my relationship to this. I don't know crap about cognitive load theory. What I know about is about navigating and managing working memory capacity. And I think the, especially after having read this paper. Yeah. Because it's interesting that you love this paper because I have questions about this paper. Because I think you and I are very much in the same place for a very specific understanding of an application of cognitive load theory that I do not think is mainstream. The intersection of learning theories is where interesting things happen. And just from a like positionality standpoint, we like self-determination theory. We have both published using self-determination theory yeah. and its application in classrooms. So like that's something where we do have a like intellectual stake. Yeah. So thinking so uh, so thinking about self-determination theory as it overlaps and intersects w- with um, working memory capacity, which is a thing that I do care about and think about in my classroom a lot, was fun for me to do as I was reading this paper.
uh, self-determination. Well, well, first of all, anytime, you know, I'm a big fan of the a chaotic, lo- uh, chaotic, oh. lawful, neutral, uh, good, evil axes. So the fact that they created a, uh, a teacher classroom management motivational control axes of the same thing, I want to like create that, that, and then map the D alignments to the different the things like this teacher the neutral evil is this approach and because they they kind of created that have i had chaotic moments in my classroom oh yeah for sure have i had moments where i doubled down on control in my classroom for sure um i i i think we probably are biased right like we probably all of us all of us probably everyone in the profession would like re- like initially at least look at this and say, well, I'm probably in the structure uh, autonomy support section. Like, like we're probably not reliable narrators of our own. The story we tell ourselves about ourselves is the story that we want to be telling ourselves yeah, about it's ourselves. About, it's about that's, I don't know. It's just a tool to think about my practice, which think, is new. I think that's useful. Like we're, we're both placing value judgments on these places are good and those places are bad. Mm-hmm. But I think the essence of it is just do things on purpose. Yeah. So like, where am I? And is that where I want to be? You're right. Align your practice with your intentions. And well, that is valuable. And that's true because there, you know, um, there are times, especially in a science classroom, because some things actually are legitimately dangerous, that you do need to spend some time at 7.30. There are times when 7.30 is absolutely correct. You may not and will not do this, period. End of story. I liked reading that paper. It was a fun paper for me to read. So, and that is the core. As I read this paper, and I, I like the comparisons. I like that this is this is in a review titled journal, but it is a study. But they have a really deep literature review section. Yeah. And I liked being able to do both of those things in the paper. And I enjoyed learning more about the background of both these theories that are both already familiar to us to an extent. But I think there's an essential... Uh, lack of examination of how cognitive load gets treated. So I I did come with questions. They used the phrase load reduction instruction several times. And uh, though they did kind of hint at some of the things involved in load instruction, uh, load reduction instruction, I went ahead and looked up some things independently because like, I want this more, um, I want this more operationalized as I read the paper. And it, it's really, and a lot of the things about that are things that I consider to be important. It's a lot about scaffolding. Like it's very important that scaffolding is present. Um, it, it's about uh, opportunities for students to engage and ask questions, but not to overburden them with tasks that they don't. A, a path to success needs to be visible. And if one's not, then then it's 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 too much. And then... Uh, I I probably read into this. You need an environment that is not going to engage in distraction, so they you know reduce the the burden of the of the choices that their mind is making of what's important and what's not important. Which is interesting because you know just I, was it two episodes ago we said that presenting present things with more complexity in the visuals so that they are more likely to anchor the information in multiple places. And so it's not that you can't give them complicated things. It's that you have to give them the space to process those complicated things when that is the focus. And you need to remove the distractions 
from the complicated things, the things that you don't want them to puzzle over, take out of the equation and then so that they can puzzle over the complicated things and only the complicated things. I think that is the essence of what I want to see more unpacked in the relationship between these two theories is they talk a lot in the paper about the difference between intrinsic cognitive load and extrinsic cognitive load. Intrinsic cognitive load is how much working memory, how much cognitive resource does it take to engage in whatever I'm doing as a learning task? If this is a hard thing, then it takes me a lot of energy to think about and work that problem. But that is all related to the problem. And that is different from the extraneous cognitive load of I'm trying to do that problem while four kids are in a fist fight right behind me. The well, I'm that's pretty distracting. I'm spending a lot of my brain energy just making sure I don't get hit by an errant kick. That's not at all related to this learning activity. That is an extrinsic cognitive load. And the impact of both of those elements of cognitive load on my finite degree of working memory and how motivated I am to engage in learning in that context. But what I think gets, what I want to see more discussed is the importance of some cognitive load is necessary. Well, yeah, an empty mind's not going to do any processing at all. Well, and if you look at the details of some of the measures in their experiment, where they're asking questions like, this class is hard. That doesn't differentiate whether it is productive struggle or unproductive struggle. Right. That does not differentiate whether I'm in my zone of proximal development or beyond it. Oh, that's fair. And I think that when you, re when you uh, recognize that their measure of academic performance is grades, you see that there's a pretty substantial threat to validity in the study where I can be reporting this class is not hard. And then I got an A in a class that I told you wasn't hard. That doesn't actually tell you very much about whether I learned things or whether it was just an easy class. Well, they actually made that critique themselves um, that grades were not necessarily a reliable um, uh, uh, measurement of the efficacy of, of something that, yeah well okay so i'm gonna be honest i just ignored grades so like i whatever critiques you have about their inclusion or exclusion of grades i, I didn't even care about what i cared about was the relationship between um the cognitive load and the motivation and essentially their findings was that reducing students cognitive load improves motivation and engagement and i really would like to draw attention to that finding relationship to the teacher's um, management slash motivational style. Because if a student is in your class worried about how to engage with you in order to not trigger your punitive or consequential behaviors, that is taking up space in their working memory that could otherwise be used to engage with the content that you would presumably want them to grow. So if they've come to find you as someone that overreacts or instantaneously reacts or um, is like unreasonable or does not listen or they are afraid of you or they think this... Uh, this thing is going to happen, then part of their automatic attention, part of their working memory is going to be developed to automatic attention to scan you in the background of their mind so they're not triggering some kind of effect from you that they don't want to experience. And that is processing that they could be using on the learning that you are assigning them. Uh, I also, during this, had, had to reflect that I am and encourage that between myself and my students regarding their cell phones. I want my kids worried in the back of their mind about whether I'm going to get on them and call their parents 
and send them to the office and confiscate their phones about their cell phones, ironically, because the presence of their cell phones reduces their working memory capacity. So maybe I'm just trading spaces. What I take away from this paper, one of the reasons why I really liked it is because that fight, the fight for cell phones in the classroom is justified because cell phones reduce working memory capacity. The presence, just their presence. When they are off and on the table, they have less working memory capacity than if they're in the bag, which is less than if they're in another room. So like my insistence on that as like, and your firmness, like just knowing how you operate your classroom, the firmness, the clarity, the unequivocal application of that expectation over time reduces the ambiguity of whether it will be applied, which then reduces the salience of the question, yeah. which was the point. Right. And also the clear expectations. You need to know mastery of this. These are the things that you have to have mastery of. It's like that, and it's like that every time. Intent matters. How was the beer? The beer was who we thought they were, mm -hmm. to make a football reference here in the middle of the playoffs. My favorite parts of Imperial Stouts are the Imperial Stoutiness, and so... Nailed it. Mm -hmm. uh, what I found is there was a little bit of sediment at the bottom of my mm -hmm. first beer. Uh, I didn't anticipate that, but it um, it's it's got a nice mildness um, and a warmness, which I appreciate in this cold. Uh, it's like the third week of the second semester, and this is the first week that our students have had two consecutive days of school. So this historic Arctic blast that yeah. came down and got us, yeah. And uh, so to have a nice beer that's a little bit warming is nice. Is that it's a it's like a, a syrupy kind of a kind of a, almost a sweetness there in the middle um, that is pretty strong, pretty strong at least in my experience. Uh, well, I I mean, um, they describe it as chewy and chocolatey. Agreed. Uh, and I would say I'm tasting like a tiny hint of maple in there, maybe. Thanks for tuning in to another month. We hope that uh, you're staying warm out there if warmness is something to which you aspire. We have a commenting section on twopintplc.com. Please let us know what you want to hear us talk about. If you have papers that you've written or papers that you've read or papers you just want to hear about, this is Better Together. We will see you next month. As we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.